for allowing us to use that that would say something by him the video was much more powerful than the audio but obviously this is the podcast so that's what we had uh, the reason that we started the show that way was because you know we've had another workplace violence episode this time in chicago right tom yes a uh, if anybody doesn't know the story a gunman well i should let's start off with this a very angry boyfriend walked into the emergency room on a Southside Chicago ER 
got into an argument with a ER physician, and he had his concealed carry weapon on him. He pulled it out, shot her multiple times, killing her directly right there. Officers arrived on scene. Uh, the first two officers came inside to deal with the threat. Uh, one of the officers was shot and then later died from those injuries. And while the suspect was trying to escape, ran into a first-year uh, pharmacy resident getting off an elevator and shot and killed her as well. And I, you know, Tom and I talked beforehand, we're not going to give the gunman any more notoriety than what he's already had, so we will refuse to say his name. Uh, that's not what this is about. It's more about uh, those who you know, went to work that day to care for people and then tragically lost their lives. So that would be Dr. Tamara O'Neill. She was the ER physician. Dana Les was the pharmacist, and she was actually in her first year of residency. And then the police officer was Samuel Jimenez, and he was the Chicago police officer. Um, I know we did a show not that long ago, and I, I think we talked about it multiple times then about how important this topic was in particular to me, but to both of us. And I can only express the greatest sorrow for everybody that was the victim in Chicago. And that's been the victim since there has been more incidents since maybe not as highly publicized, but every day there's incidents. And if you're the victim of violence, I'm sorry. And I just hope that eventually we as a profession get our shit together and either get the government to enact something or get our own hospital administrations to get behind us and do something. But you know, the hashtag silent Amore says it all. Like we cannot sit idly by any longer. It's clear. No one else is going to help us if we don't help ourselves. I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, you know, like you said, hashtag silent no more. It's, it's time to start taking care of ourselves because we're the ones that are going to have to take care of us. Um, I would strongly recommend that you contact your senators and representatives in Congress. It's House Resolution 5223. That is the Health Care Workplace Violence Protection Act that uh, will allow lawmakers to have OSHA set standards to protect us uh, from tragic events like what happened in Chicago. Yes, we, we got to start focusing on real workplace safety, not if we have an open goddamn drink at the nurse's station. What are we actually doing to protect ourselves and our patients? I mean, this extends beyond just us, but if we can't take care of ourselves and we are the first victim, then who is going to be left to help those that are behind? I agree. Well, Tom, let's, uh, you know, I hate to start off a somber way, but it needed to be done. So again, special thanks to Dog MD for allowing us to use that. Uh, let's, we'll take a break and let's get the show started so that we can, uh, I think we got a good guest coming up. You're listening to Just Some Podcasts, and here's your hosts, Ben and Tom. Welcome, 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 everybody, to another fun and exciting episode. Well, it's going to start being fun and exciting now. Yeah, like, you know, yeah, but now it is. And 
by popular demand, we have a, a special guest on the show, and her first name is Hillary. So, Miss Hillary, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Hillary. I live in the same state as Ben, and I am a urology nurse practitioner. I am also a major in the U.S. Army Reserves. And I'm also the only certified urology nurse practitioner in the state of Kansas that I'm aware of, that I've looked up, actually. So, But I just became certified. And you just recently got that. Yeah. Well, congratulations on that. And, of course, thank you for your service in the military. We That's my pleasure. We greatly appreciate that as well. So my only question is, why the hell are you sticking around there? Where? that barren wasteland that is known as Kansas. Well, I'm here for now, but I'm not here permanently. Now that is a, that's a fantastic answer. And Ben, you need to learn from this lady. I'll work on that for you, Tom. Yeah. So, uh, Hillary, tell us about your week. Well, I haven't had a very interesting week. So just same old, same old, really nothing new. Basically... I have done some research for the show, looked up some the guidelines to discuss about our men's health episode tonight, because it is Movember, and Movember means, some people say it, no shave November, but it's also known to be Men's Health Month. Now, I believe this year they were, uh, and I think we'll talk about more about this, because I think Hillary and I talked about this offline, they were trying to get No Nut November going as well. Yeah, fuck that. So, I, I mean, let's let's face some facts for Tom. I'm married to a beautiful woman, and she knows she's way out of my league. So it's pretty much no nut November for Tom. But if I didn't do that shit on purpose, so let's just be clear about that. And I didn't know Hillary was a, a major. So like now when I was like, hey, what'd you do this week? I was imagining her going like aerosol out of a Blackhawk on her way to work. Like... I was like, oh, shit, yeah, she's going to do something cool. And then she leads off with, ah, you know, nothing. I'm like, oh, shit. She can't talk about that stuff, Tom. Come on now. Secret <laughs> mission. What, is that what it was, Hillary? Was it all classified? Just cough if that's what it was. <laughs> uh, see, there you go. See, yeah. So um, just so the, the crowd, the crowd being like all 12 people that are going to hear this, if I cough, it is not because of anything classified. It is because I have a cold and I can't seem to kick this goddamn cough. That's the most interesting thing that happened to me this week. Besides looking up facts for a story that we ended up not doing. Thanks, Ben. And then... what We, we will do the story. I think it's just going to be more than a story you're going to miss. I think we may do an entire episode on what you researched. And let's be honest, Tom, you researched breast augmentation. You, you, it was not too much of a stretch for you to research then. No, not at all. And I got to say, um, within some of the nurse practitioner groups, that is a very popular topic. So I think, I think there's some traction for, uh, for us doing a whole episode on that. Sounds interesting. I think so. Oh boy. Yeah. Can't say that I'm a fan. Say that one more time. Can't say that I'm a fan. I'm I'm more of a appreciator of the natural boob, unless they're just so awful that you just need to go and get something done. But I've seen some bad fake boobs. True. I you know I think yeah. I mean there's some bad fake ones. 
I'm just going to say I try to appreciate all boobs. And, you know, that's just, that's, I, I think it was uh, Rodney Carrington. He's like, men with boobs or like women with shoes. Um, I want to see every pair. So <laughs> let's like go from there. Well, Tom, that kind of slides right into our story that you may have missed. So nice segue. Oh, thank you. I planned that on purpose. Yeah, I'm sure you did. So this is actually a study from 2012 that uh, was published in the Archives of Internal Medicine, and it looked at the effects of positive thinking on men's health. And hey, you know, this, we're doing a Men's Health Month episode anyway, so that all kind of ties in together. So basically, after a year of positive thinking, it had very powerful effects on these men. And what were some of their positive thoughts they were having? Looking at boobs. So apparently, looking at boobs, Tom, can potentially make you live longer. I, I get that, but Hillary, don't you think it would help a woman's health as well? Uh, to look at her own boobs or other women's boobs? Well, you know, all, yeah, exactly. In my book, that doesn't register. I'll, I'll go on the other side of the team here and vote for what I do for a living. I mostly deal with men. I don't deal with a whole lot of women. See, so that raises an interesting question then. So if you're you're dealing with cranks all day. Wouldn't you want to see some women's boobs eventually? Nope. Okay. Well, I, you know, Tom stands corrected. <clears throat> there you go. I mean, that's that, I guess that says it all. So I, I think it would help me out, but you know, it's apparently not going to help everybody. So that's good to know. Good to know. I have a term. I can call it, and I've used it even before I was in neurology. I call myself Strictly Dickly. There you go. That's a hashtag right there. Strictly Dickly. Well, you know, and I guess it applies now, right? <laughs> so, I mean. I do see women occasionally, but the majority of my patients are men. So, yeah, it does apply. And I'm happy to be an advocate for men's health. I, I think it's a field where it needs more recognition, especially amongst nurse practitioners, as in we don't get quite enough education on men's health in our, some of our programs, I believe. So I will be an advocate for men's health, and I'll stay strictly dickly as long. There you go. Well, I think with this story, Tom, this explains, like, when you go to the strip club and there's, like, that one, like, 80-year-old man sitting over in the corner kind of by himself, it's because he's looked at boobs for 40 years. So clearly he's living longer. Yeah, what you didn't know is he's actually 110. He just looks 80 because the boobs. And you know what? So Hillary's on that side, and I am all about trying to help women's health with boobs. So that's our yin-yang. You know, there's got to be one on each side. I'm happy to take that that mantle and uh, help out as much as possible with that. So good to know. See, this is all around – Look at this. We are building a community of healthy people here, Ben. We are. Well, you're ready to get into our main topic so that we can uh, move past the boobs and talk about why Hillary's here? Well, I am actually, first of all, I completely agree with her. I don't think any of us gets, gets, my God. I do not believe any of us receives enough education for men's health. Like, I did an entire, you know, semester for women's health, but I did almost nothing for men's health. So I agree with her on that. But True. one last side note, I will never be past boobs, Ben. So with that said, well, we can move forward. Actually, before we move forward into the main topic, um, 
I forgot social media. Oh my god. How did that happen? Ben? I, I Hillary, when we, well, I would say we were we were fascinated with the poops. Hillary, you've never I don't know you've never heard it live, so you'll you'll hear the happiness and joy in this man's voice as he does the social media shout out. Well, if you want to reach out and join the conversation with us, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Just Some Podcast. Or you can find us on the web, www.justsomepodcast.com. Our email is admin at justsomepodcast.com. Tom, what else can they do for us? Well, they can do a variety of things to help us out. First of all, sharing us on all those social media sites that he just talked about, that would really help out the show. And financially to help out the show, our Amazon affiliate link, which is on our website, click on that before you make any purchase on Amazon. It's totally free. It takes just a few seconds, and it takes you right to the site, and then you can start making purchases. So it helps you out, helps us out, and helps uh, build a podcast for NP. So we're uh, we're really appreciating all your help for people that have made those purchases and actually fact checker sam made some purchases that uh, look like they'd come through uh, with our amazon affiliate link and he mentioned how easy it was so that's great well that's about the only thing sam's done lately so it's no. good to know he's doing something i know kyle sure as hell hasn't been doing anything no kyle has not but before we get off on kyle let's uh let's get into men's health what do you think well i think that's up to miss hillary she's the expert I'm ready. So, Hillary, how long have you been a urologist nurse practitioner? Uh, two years now. And I just stumbled upon it. I didn't realize that was where I was going to land. Urology was just kind of a mystery to me because I feel that people don't really understand urology until you actually need to see a urologist. So, wound up applying for the job and I got the job and I've... I assist in surgery sometimes, and I do inpatient work. I do consults on the floor. I do consults in the ER, do a lot of outpatient clinic, and I found that I absolutely loved it. I felt that it's such a specialized area that I could really focus and hone in on several different things that urology encompasses. It's a nice balance of medicine and surgery. So I also realized that it we build lifelong relationships with our patients and they're very important relationships they're obviously intimate in many ways and i just enjoyed taking care of this population majority of them are older males right and older males can be stubborn sometimes but i'm definitely happy to be a reference to my patients be a level of comfort and also to spread my knowledge about men's health to folks like you and whoever else wants to listen. Well, it sounds like they have you like all over the place working hard. So, I mean, you're inpatient, outpatient, surgery, clinic, a little bit everywhere, sounds like. That's the beauty of urology. Gets to do a lot of different things. So I enjoyed it. So you said you applied for the job. Were you already working in another field and decided that urology sounded great? Was this your first foray into nurse practitioner? What led you to want to apply for that job? Well, so I was working in an emergency room and I had been an ER nurse for many years prior. ER, I just knew I didn't want to stay there for the long haul. I wanted to work at the VA, being that I'm military, wanted to take care of my brothers and sisters, and that was the only opening in my area, so I applied, 
that was the only thing that was open and I got the job and it was in neurology and I said have a couple of friends who work in it and I said what do you think do you think I'd like it and they said knowing you oh yeah you'll like it so there I am Okay, so I have a question for you. Being in family practice like I am, I have several female patients who would prefer to go see like an OBGYN for their annual exams because I'm a male, which I completely understand and I support that. Do you have issues being a female working with a predominantly male population uh, in urology? Say that one more time. Have you noticed any problems with working with males being being that you're a female? Uh, working in in urology like i have patients who would prefer to not have me see their female parts because i'm male yes yes Uh, for me i've had very limited patients who have not been open to seeing me a couple of them at first may say no it's a female but i'm usually the only one in the clinic on certain days so either they see me or they see nobody and they usually opt to see me and then they say oh I never thought I could actually talk to a female about my erectile dysfunction or my issues regarding my bladder prostate what have you and then they find that you're actually easy to talk to so I'm glad I learned something today and that's usually the feedback that I get so for me very rare and of course being at a VA population is majority males a lot of older males but they've been very receptive to it. I think I've maybe had one or two, but not, not frequent. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that. So I know you had kind of picked out a couple of topics that we wanted to really hone in on. Uh, so I think the first was prostate cancer. Is that correct? Yes. So let me give you some facts about prostate cancer. Prostate cancer is near and dear to my heart. It's very common in my practice. And it's actually the second most diagnosed malignancy in men after skin cancer. And the lifetime risk is one in seven men will develop prostate cancer in their lifetime. It's also the second leading cause of cancer deaths in American men after lung cancer. But the caveat to that is only 16% of men diagnosed will actually die from it. There's been a lot of research. There's been a lot more attention to prostate cancer over the years since the PSA was developed. Therefore, men are not dying from prostate cancer now as they did many years ago. And you said it was 16%? Is that right? Approximately, yes. Approximately 16% of men actually will die from prostate cancer. And it's- So Go ahead, what, one of the questions I guess I would have then is, so early detection, early treatment is the key, or is there certain types of cancer within the prostate, or is there different, I guess, gene mutations, I should say, that are harder to treat? Or is it just as long as you can find it early, you can fix it? Well, that's a great point. So when it comes to early detection, there, the thing that I like to go to is I go to the AUA, which is the American Neurological Association guidelines regarding prostate cancer. There is a free app from the AUA that you can download the guidelines and review them so you actually know what they are. And the AUA actually supports a thing called shared decision making, which is a big part of prostate cancer screening, discussion, management, because prostate cancer can also be overtreated. And there are harms to overtreatment of prostate cancer, such as erectile dysfunction, urinary incontinence, decreased quality of life due to treatment of something that a patient may not have needed such aggressive treatment for, or something that may not have killed them. Prostate cancer doesn't typically grow very fast, but 
The prostate cancer is actually called adenocarcinoma is what it shows up in as a biopsy. That is the most typical prostate cancer that there is. And there's different grades of prostate cancer. So you have what's called a Gleason score, and I won't necessarily go into that. But and there's also now a grade group. So they have a grade group. One is the least to five is the most aggressive. And that's a newer thing that they grade prostate cancer on. So let me go over some risk factors. You all understand. So age incidence increases in men after the age of 40. And men of African, black males, ethnicity-wise, they tend to have more severe prostate cancer, and they're also more often diagnosed with prostate cancer than their white, Asian, Hispanic counterparts. It is typically genetic. And speaking of breasts, this is a great thing to ask in your health history on your patient. So there's a twofold increased risk with a family history of first degree relative, like a father or a brother. And also the BRCA2 and BRCA1 mutations, family history of breast or ovarian cancer is also linked to a risk for prostate cancer. So there we bring boobs back into the situation. Hmm, that's interesting. I didn't know that. There's also a syndrome called Lynch syndrome, which I'm not very familiar with, but that's another risk factor. Also possible possible dietary factors, high dietary dietary fat intake, high animal fat intake, and low vegetable intake. And that's a topic dear to my heart. I am vegetarian and I prefer to do a plant-based diet and I'm huge on plant-based diets. And so it's great to see that there's literature out there supporting plant-based diets to help mitigate some risks of not just prostate cancer, but pretty much all cancers and a lot of different health conditions. So question, and we've done a diet episode, actually, and we probably should do like an update diet episode, but um, for someone like myself, looking at something like the ketogenic diet. So you're telling me that that high fat diet is going to increase, or it could possibly, I should say, increase my risk of uh, prostate cancer. That is a possibility. That's what some of the literature that I've read supports. Also some of the literature that is supported via the AUA and also some other I'm committees that I'm a part of that, but they support that based diet. So of course you have to think of the bias in there, but research has shown that high fat diets, high intake of animal proteins lead to several different urologic conditions, kidney stones, potentially prostate cancer. So Hmm. I'm not a, I'm not a fan of any keto diet, obviously. And, um, well, having, uh, suffered through one kidney stone, November 4th, 2009, <laughs> um, a date I will never forget for the rest of my life. And my first introduction pre-nursing into urology that, I mean, I know those are some of the factors and, you know, I've done some research on it, but it's always good to hear some more specifics on it than, oh, it could happen. Well, I want to know a little more. So thank you for bringing that up. You're welcome. So I'm going to continue with a couple more risk factors. So we know that Agent Orange is definitely a risk factor for prostate cancer as well. A lot of my population, you know, Vietnam vets are in their 70s at this point, typically. Not so much, can be in their late 60s, mid 60s, but typically 70s range is what we're seeing our um, our Vietnam vets are getting diagnosed with prostate cancer. Uh, also, cigarette smoking due to cadmium in cigarettes is also a known factor or risk factor for prostate cancer. I was going to have to apologize, Hillary, because for a minute, when you first said Agent Orange and I forgot you worked at the VA, I was like, who the hell did, did 
did she come into contact with? And then when you said at the VA, I was like, oh, thank God she said that because I forgot for a minute. So when the, the cigarette smoking, we all know is bad for you. Do you deal with a lot of other cancers other than prostate or did you want to continue on the prostate cancer tract? I do deal with kidney cancer and bladder cancer. So those are two other cancers that I deal with. But I'll talk to you a little bit about just a few things more about prostate cancer and then we can move on just for sake of time. Sound like a plan? Sure. Okay. So we all know that prostate cancer, BPH, symptoms can be synonymous in some ways. For instance, most people that have prostate cancer are asymptomatic. So it, the symptoms can cause urinary urgency, nocturia, frequency, hesitancy. Such symptoms are usually with advanced prostate disease, but more likely they're due to BPH. So another interesting thing is new onset of erectile dysfunction could be an enlarging prostate gland that may be encroaching on the periprostatic tissue that contains the neurovascular bundles. So that's also something that you can think in the back of your mind. If I have a young person that I'm seeing that complains of erectile dysfunction and there isn't any other known risk factors, go ahead and do a DRE. The thing I do want it to propose that a lot of primary care people don't do is they don't do a DRE on patients. That is so important to do because not only... I am kind of guilty of that. So not only I'll be honest. do you know what a normal prostate feels like if you keep doing it, then you eventually feel something abnormal and you can say, wow, that doesn't feel right. Because I have detected deadly prostate cancers on patients without an elevated PSA. So not everybody with elevated PSA doesn't have prostate cancer. So... Elevated PSAs can also be due to BPH, age. There's age-adjusted ranges for, for PSAs. So move somebody in primary care because that's where it starts, right? We get the referral from you all. People don't just typically come into our urology clinic and say, well, I, I want to get checked for prostate cancer. Or do, they, or do men even really think about that unless that's something that they're afraid of or they have a known family history or what have you? Well, that, that brings up something for me as a newer nurse practitioner is when it seems, at least in the newer training methods, I should say, a lot of the people we're dealing with in primary care that have had experience with urology, urology told them, don't do a DRE. If you think there's a problem, just send them straight to us. So we're being told in some cases, don't worry about it. If you think there's a problem, then you just get the referral to us and we'll take care of it. So since I don't have a lot of experience with something like that, where would you suggest for people that are interested in learning more about DREs or other things like that, where would we get that information or training? Well, you could always, if you have a urologist that is within your network, you can always ask to maybe do some time with them doing DREs. Um, the other information is you can look up and see, okay, what does a normal prostate, what is it supposed to feel like? I'm sure there's plenty of Google references out there that can, that we all know how to look up research that's valid and not just hokey. So at least we should. Um, so I would say, hey, you know, right. look it up, see what you're supposed to be feeling for. Um, the thing that I notice is the prostate is, as men get older, it gets larger. Um, not everybody's as palpable because you're only feeling the backside of the prostate. And majority of prostate cancers are going to be in that peripheral zone, which is in the backside of the prostate area, which is palpable. Sometimes it's grossly abnormal. You just know, hey, something's not right here. Uh, it's supposed to kind of feel, feel if you feel the 
you know, below your thumb, there's that squishy part of your hand. Which we're both doing now. Yeah. If you feel that, your prostate tissue should feel rubbery like that. It should be kind of rubbery, not super firm. It should be symmetrical on both sides. Shouldn't feel any nodules. It could be enlarged, but the average size of a prostate is approximately a walnut, maybe a little bit bigger. But a digital rectal exam is not the greatest way to estimate prostate size. It's just the only way you can do it when you're not doing an ultrasound. And all that was great information. The only thing I was going to point out was, honestly, I don't know if everybody does know how to do good research anymore. And so perhaps, uh, you know, if you're out there listening and you're thinking, I don't know where to look. That means don't just look up the very first thing or WebMD, for God's sakes. You know, actually get into some information. You can look at the AUA. They have a bunch of literature and free resources on AUA. Also, I like urologyhealth.org, which is typically a patient portal by the Urology Care Foundation, which is a part of the AUA that has some good reference. But when I think about where do I want to look, if I'm looking up somebody regarding um, say thyroid, you know, I want to look at the endocrine society. If I'm dealing with something with GI, you know, I might want to look up, you know, a GI learned authority. That's kind of where I go to when it comes to research on a specialty area is go to that learned authority. That makes sense. And we could probably throw a couple of those links up on the website and on our social media. Also. So let me just quickly go over these, some guidelines about when to actually screen patients. Cause that's always a big question. You know, the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force came out with information years ago saying, oh, don't even check PSAs, don't do digital rectal exams, they're not needed, prostate cancer is not a big deal. Well, the AUA put up a big stink about that because you can't just ignore prostate cancer. If one out of seven men in their lifetime will have it, you know, that's something that you just don't want to just put on the back burner. Well, sorry. And then too, way, way too late, patient has metastasis that's spread to their bones and so forth. And you don't want to be that person. So AUA has guidelines on when to screen. So the typical age to screen for prostate cancer for the average patient at average risk is between the ages of 55 and 69. So starting at 55, get a PSA, do a digital rectal exam. If a patient has had prostate cancer in their first-line relative. At a younger age, I would say check it sooner. You can start at 50, but that's what shared decision-making comes in and you discuss, hey, should we check for this? Also, I want to tell you something really interesting because our men who are African-American, Black, since they do have a higher risk of more aggressive prostate cancer, there was an interesting article that just came out and talks about midlife PSA levels predict aggressive prostate cancer among black men. That just came out yesterday. So saying that men who are of that heritage have their PSAs checked between the ages of, like say, midlife, that's generally about 40, 45, that that might be something you can discuss with those patients. Then you can look up your age-adjusted PSA values, which are... I don't need to go over all those if you don't want, but those are found on the AUA guidelines. And But I, knowing that that a PSA of four is the normal the normal cutoff. If the PSA is over four, that's usually you want to say, huh, what's going on here? And then you want to recheck it, say, in three months, see if it's continuing to go up. Um, and then if you have any doubts, you can always refer to urology if there's any question and you have concerns. But that PSA you know, in younger men should be lower 
in older men, there's an age-adjusted value up to 6.5. So there's a lot of wiggle room and there's a lot of definition there to really be honed in on. It uh, doesn't necessarily have to be at the primary care level, but it is good information to at least kind of wrap your head around, well, what's a normal PSA? So you said that 55 is when they recommend starting PSAs for an average risk? Right. So that's for the patient at average risk, okay? 55 to 69 year old is what the recommended screening age is. So after 70 years old, if you the recommendation is is depending on the health of that patient, if that patient's going to live 10 years or more um, and still wants to continue with screening for prostate cancer, that's something that you can discuss with that patient. That's what when you refer to shared decision making, and therefore, you know, you just have to talk to the patient and see if that's just the AUA guideline. Guidelines are not black and white. You know, they're meant to be interpreted and discussed. Right. But the other thing I want you to know is that if you have a patient who has had prostate cancer in the past, this is so important because I see this a lot in practice, is they've been treated for prostate cancer in the past. They haven't been seeing a urologist in years, okay? And the thing is, is they always need urologic follow-up after they've been treated for prostate cancer, whether they had surgery or whether they had radiation therapy. Uh, those are the two most common types of therapy for prostate cancer treatment. And if they're, because they can have biochemical recurrence, people think, oh, I've been treated for prostate cancer, it's gone. Well, it can come back, okay? It can come back at the anastomotic site. If you still have a prostate, prostate tissue can regenerate. If you've had radiation, you can still, your risk still is there. So the basic guideline for uh, biochemical recurrence in somebody who's had a prostatectomy is if their PSA is, is over 0.2, two times. That would be considered biochemical. They definitely need to see a urologist. When it comes to radiation, that's a little bit different. That's a long conversation. But if they have an elevated PSA after they've been treated and you see that and they're not seeing urology, I would kick them back to urology and let them be taken care of by that specialist. Well, I will say as a 40-year-old male, I'm happy to hear that it's not until 55 that I don't need to do PSAs and DREs now because, you know, I was a little concerned about that. But, hey, you well, remember the shared decision-making and also the, the history, getting a history of that patient's important. So you can start having a discussion earlier about it, depending on that patient's history, risk factors, and so forth. It doesn't hurt to have that decision. And that well, discussion, my first thought was, first of all, yay, it's still several years away for me. <laughs> and two, I'm going to start meeting every urologist I can, shake their hand. I want the smallest fingers possible. <laughs> on whoever's going to be doing my DRE. Like that's all I'm looking for. I like, I, I don't care woman. I don't care man, but who's got the daintiest hands. That's what I'm looking for. Like, is it like a gentle touch? Are they clearly using isotone or lotion at night? Like I need to know these things before this guy gets or her gets really friendly with me. I'm just, that was, that's literally what I thought for like a whole site. I had a whole movie scene in my head of like, Nah, you're wearing a Super Bowl ring. You need to back off, Chuck. You're not coming near me. So <laughs> so that's one thing about being a female in urology is my hands aren't as big. There you go. Say to them. So bonus for my patients. A lot of them will say, let me look at your hands. I'm like, oh, okay, you're good, you're good. Honestly, oh, yeah. honestly, that's one of the things I was thinking. I was like, well, I wonder if Hillary will do my first one because she's probably got tiny fingers. So <laughs> yep. bring it, it was a bring it. <laughs> So, well, Hillary, do you want to get into bladder cancer? Sure, we'll talk about a little bit about that. That's kind of quicker to go over than 
prostate cancer. Prostate cancer, we could talk about forever. So bladder cancer, not something people really think about a whole lot of until it is super obvious. So bladder cancer is the second most common cancer of the GU tract, and it is the sixth most common cancer in the United States. The ratio of men to women is three to one. There is a higher incidence in whites. However, African-Americans have poorer outcomes. The average age of diagnosis is 73. Uh, the 10-year survival rates are 70 to 85% in high-grade non-muscle invasive bladder cancer and higher rates in low-grade non-invasive muscle, um, non-invasive uh, bladder cancer. So it doesn't invade into the detrusor muscle. So the biggest risk factor is that even after they've quit, these people could have smoked 20 years ago, 30 years ago. They are still going to be at risk for bladder cancer in the future. 50% uh, of bladder cancers are uh, due to tobacco use. You dumb. And so you're saying you're saying smoking's bad? How come I have never heard of this? <laughs> well, but the thing is, most people don't associate smoking with bladder cancer. I mean, most people say, "Oh, I'm going to get lung cancer." Okay, well, did you know that you also can get bladder cancer? And that sounds bad, too. Actually, I, I do remember that from basic nursing school with Sam the Fact Checker. I remember that specifically, actually, because it was so uh, absurd. I was like, bladder cancer from smoking? Jesus. But, you know, you, you are correct. There are a lot of uh, ailments that people don't associate with that. I actually knew a person that would only smoke half of a cigarette. And when we asked him why, he said, because the bad stuff is in the back half. Like, this asshole literally oh. thought that if he didn't smoke the part near the filter, he was okay. I really thought you were going to say that lowered his risk for cancer in half. I really thought that's what you were going to say. No, that's essentially what he was saying. He was saying, I only smoke half a cigarette because the bad stuff is near the filter. I was like, no, I fucking think all of it's bad, Chucko. So you need to deal with that. But anyways, back to bladder cancer. <laughs> Right. So the other risk factors in the history of pelvic radiation. So those folks that have had radiation for prostate cancer also have a risk of rectal and bladder cancer in the future after they've had pelvic radiation. So that's another thing. Over 50 years old, that's another one. Also, it's occupational exposure to dyes, benzenes, and aromatic amines. So interesting thing is um, back in the day, like, hairdressers tend to have a higher risk of bladder cancer due to the hair dyes. So... <laughs> Kind of interesting. Yeah. So you get your hair done, and now that lady's got bladder cancer. Of gravity. Well. So another one is those patients that have chronic indwelling catheters. I don't know how many of those you. patients you see, but those those patients that have them, if they should be assessed by a urologist, and they should have a cystoscopy every two years because they are at risk for squamous cell due to chronic irritation from a chronic indwelling catheter. Hmm. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. So also renal transplant recipients um, and some chemos that were used for non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and also neurofibromatosis is also a risk factor for bladder cancer. I did have an interesting patient who had, you can get invasiveness into the bladder from having uh, neurofibromatosis and some genetic mutations. And again, this Lynch syndrome, which I'm not super familiar with. I haven't run into that. So the thing to detect bladder cancer, the biggest telltale sign of you probably have heard that if you see blood in the urine, it's bladder cancer until proven otherwise. So painless hematuria, right? Right. Painless, gross hematuria. But you also have microscopic hematuria. Patients who have persistent microscopic hematuria, the guideline says over the age of 35 who have 
persistent microscopic hematuria, not on the dipstick, but three to five or more red blood cells on microscope in the urine consistently, um, say several times, I would send those patients to urologist for evaluation. What we do is we get a CT urogram. So we do a dye phase and we look at their kidneys to see if there's any masses in the kidneys or anything along the ureters. And then they need to have a scope inside the bladder. So we can't pick up Uh, tumors in the bladder if they're less than two centimeters. So, and a lot of these folks can have very small uh, irregularities in their bladder that are not obviously not seen on imaging, but need to be seen with the naked eye. And there's even some newer technology now that can show, uh, light up some bladder cancer that's missed by the naked eye during a Cisco. So that's some amazing stuff. But bladder cancer, I see a lot of it and (laughs) it is not fun and it can be deadly and it's not a fun death. It doesn't sound like it. No, no, no. It, it, it's very tragic. And uh, people who have to undergo like a surgery for that, um, it's a very more morbid surgery. And the mortality rate is super high. And that's for muscle invasive bladder cancer typically. So check your patients. Do a UA, especially if there are people who have smoked. You know, check a UA and make sure it's the microscopic. Don't pay attention to the dip. Look at the AUA guidelines and see, hey, does this patient have pers- have micro you know microhematuria? What does that mean? What could this mean? There's so many other differentials out there. I mean, even though the the risk factor of microhematuria, it doesn't mean that that's exactly what they have, but that is something that you don't want to miss, right? Bladder cancer also um, it comes back. Majority of these patients, even with low grade non-invasive like superficial lesions, it comes back. It keeps coming back. Keeps coming back. And, you know, they need to be, they need to be followed. It can can be worse. So one of the questions I have, and I mean, you touched on it briefly, is what are some of the newer technologies or things that you foresee coming out to help us, not just you in urology, but possibly us in primary care to help take care of these patients? Or if we suspect that it's a urological issue that we're dealing with? Uh, That's a good question. So, I generally try and ask the good questions. <laughs> uh, I think I think it's important for us to have good communication with our primary care folks. I think that there needs to be more education in primary care regarding men's health issues, regarding you know prostate cancer, bladder cancer is not just a men's health issue; it's a, it can be a women's issue too. Those to me are communications key. Reading, taking the time to to read that you don't know about. Go and read about something that you're not as familiar with, something that you don't see very often. Uh, and because I know you guys get busy in primary care. You have so many things to take care of. Besides, the last thing you're probably thinking of is bladder cancer, prostate cancer, kidney cancer. I mean, those are probably like not in the forefront of your mind. So, Well, I, I don't know. I, I think Ben is probably in the similar group, not being in a specialty. I really, it really depends I don't have anything in my forethought until I start talking to the patient. And then when they start going, oh, I, I have uh, a large amount of blood in my urine, honestly, my first thought is, okay, how much is a lot? Like, because everyone's, you know, that's a, that's a subjective issue. Yeah. So when I actually get a specimen and there I've, I had one the other day that I was like, holy cow, that's, that's a lot. That's when I start to consider those those types of ailments are we talking about a, a kidney issue a bladder issue uh, a urethra issue and then 
I try and start funneling it down from there. And just like you said, I look at primary care also like a big filter. Like we're here to catch the things and treat what we can. And if not, kick them to the appropriate specialist. So it is something that's on my mind. But as you said, I also have to worry about, you know, stuff dealing with sore throats, ear, you know, aches. I mean, I deal with a whole bunch of different stuff. So you're right. It's not my first thought and uh, it's definitely something I need to learn some more about. So I appreciate everything that uh, you've talked to us about tonight. Well, thank you. Hope I answered your question. Okay though. No, yeah, of course you did. Uh, it's just the, the things I'm looking for is obviously always trying to improve. So I didn't know if you were like, Hey, in the future, this is what's coming down. This is the type oh. of tool you can use. But if like basic education is the best foundation, then that's the way to go. I think it is because I'm so specialized in my area that anything I'm talking about that's new and upcoming is going to be in my area, more advanced in the area that I work in. It's not going to be something that's going to, that I would know about that's going to bring us together so we can more easily diagnose these patients. So I really think focusing on the basics, the guidelines, just having that general knowledge of these things is going to be to your best benefit. Because if you don't know the basic, if you don't know just some of the very basic things that says, hey, I might need to you know, kick this guy to urology or hey, this is something I should think about, then you know, some fancy test isn't going to give you a boom answer either. Because I don't know what's coming down for that. It's very basic stuff that So obviously prostate cancer and bladder cancer, we're clearly going to need to refer to urology. What are some things that you want us to do testing-wise before they get there so that you guys aren't like, oh my God, they're stupid in primary care. Why didn't they do this test? So what I typically like to see from folks, you think that a patient may have prostate cancer. Get a couple PSAs. Don't just get one unless it's, say, over 10 or something. Then I would refer them. Um, but I would repeat the PSA. It's okay to wait a month, two months to repeat a PSA to see, you know, is this really elevated or not? Because people can have a bump in PSAs due to infection, prostatitis. Um, it could be, there's there's different things. And also, you can do a DRE and then get a PSA after, just as long as you're not super aggressive. Um, you're not going to change that value. It's, they used to tell us, oh, don't get a don't get a PSA, do a DRE, don't. but you can. It's not going to hurt anything as long as you're not mashing on that prostate, which I don't expect anybody to do. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, hold on. Hold on. I Let's back to this trade up. How many two-knuckle mashies of prostates have you dealt with because that visual in my head just stopped this entire conversation. Like, I'm like, what? Well, there, I, I, I did ha- I have had to do it several times to, um, there is an older genomic test that we used in my work that we uh, would have to do prostate massage essentially in order to, and get the first urine that comes out. And yeah, so I've, I've mashed on a lot of them. That does not sound fun. Holy cow. No. no. It's not fun for me. It's not fun for the patient. I'm sure not. So, so, so Ben actually started down the path I was going to go. So, so those are some things you want us to do. What are some things you don't want us to do? Like if we're going to refer them to you or are a waste of your time or information, like you don't need to know about, like, are there, are we ordering too many tests or stuff you don't need or care about? Well, not necessarily. I mean, you know, when in doubt, I mean, it's best if you're, if you're in doubt, if you have a, 
a need and you think the patient needs urologic evaluation, just send them. I mean, if they need it, great. If they don't, no big deal. I mean, give the patient the benefit of the doubt, you know? Don't, don't. Clearly, think, oh. she's not met some of the urologists that I've dealt with in the past, so. Well, I guess it all depends, of course. But I mean, <laughs> I'm nice. So what can I say? But when it comes to bladder cancer, I mean, it, and if you're going to send somebody for an elevated PSA, make sure you have a recent urine. Have you know, Also have one, at least one, I would say two PSAs minimum, just to verify that it's elevated. A free PSA is helpful too. Get a free PSA. Some people utilize that and some don't. So a free PSA, if the free PSA is low, it potentially has some more information that potentially could be due to prostate cancer. So grab a free PSA along with your PSA. Urology will appreciate that. So I recently had a PSA where it was over 60. Is that just an automatic referral? Uh, yes, I would definitely. Okay. Um, I definitely would, would refer that and let us repeat that PSA to make sure. I mean, yeah. What? Whoa, whoa, whoa. what number? Six, zero. Six, zero. I mean, that's not over 20 is over 20. We get concerned about metastatic prostate cancer. Um, I have seen PSAs 600, 700 before. So, so at that level, are they basically just sitting on a bagel sized prostate? Like what is going on at 600? Yes. I mean, I've typically when their PSA is that high, they typically will have like 600, 500. They'll have symptoms typically, but they don't always. That's the caveat is they don't always have symptoms. Are you, you're shitting me. You're telling me somebody with a prostate that big, they didn't notice anything up until that point? Well, not, I mean, you have to think about it. The prostate goes around the urethra, right? So it doesn't always encroach on that urethra. Some people may be doing fine and compensating, um, wow. There's a lot of variables huh. there. I mean, there really is. It's it's not that easy to, to discuss. So, but yeah, people can have no symptoms and have aggressive disease or you know advanced prostate cancer. I mean, it, it, it happens. Uh, That's well. It just. I mean, I'm not trying to downplay that. I'm just in my head. I'm thinking if your prostate has enlarged to that point. I'm sure there's been a case here or there in history. I'm just saying my brain automatically goes to if your prostate's that big, surely something dribbling. Typically, typically, I mean, urinary retention can be an issue, you know, irritate avoiding symptoms. I mean, majority of the cases that have a high, high PSA, you're going to see irritate avoiding. The patient's going to complain of irritate avoiding issues. You know, they're not going to may not be emptying very well. I mean, that's definitely things that I have seen in, in patients that have really advanced aggressive disease so so that is true but you know psa over 10 uh that's i I, that's when i would say you know if you see a a person with a psa over 10 i would just turf them to urology for sure if it's lower lower than that i mean you're not looking at oh my gosh something's gonna happen this is an emergency you can recheck it like based on their age talk to the patient see if they want a referral for sure you know make sure the patient knows that you're going to refer them to urology because they have an elevated psa if it's over 10 i would Pretty much, I wouldn't really wait on that. I would just turf him. Is that a better guideline to kind of go by? Like, yeah, that's kind of just down and dirty. Yeah, no, I like that. No, I, I like I like the one pager. Like, I can just you know, you're saying ten or repeat or this. That's all the that's all helpful information for me. I just I'm still mashing <laughs> or wrapping my brain around imagining a, a prostate mash, and I'm like, oh my god, like. I, and ugh, that's going to haunt my she's dreams. She's got small fingers, Donald, so it's probably, like, wrist deep. <laughs> hey, some minds might like that, okay? Never know. Oh. Drugs for different folks. That's true. That's well, 
Yeah, exactly. And if that's good for them, I'm happy for them. You know, I'm just, I'm just like in my brain going, I, I've been in traumas and didn't lose my lunch, but I'm telling you right now, if I watched her punching a dude in his <laughs> prostate, I'm probably gonna wince a little. I'm not gonna lie. It's, it's gonna make one of my like eyes tear up. So, like, oh. <laughs> I cannot empathize with you. Sorry. <laughs> well, so we've covered. Uh, oh, t- thanks, Tom. So we've covered prostate cancer and bladder cancer. And obviously, what we need to refer. What I would like to to finish on is a um, a harder subject, shall we say, um, and something we can probably take care of mostly in primary care, and that would be erectile dysfunction. Yes, I am your person for erectile dysfunction. So anyhow, <laughs> uh, let me. Don't sound too happy saying that. <laughs> well, I deal, I deal with it quite a bit. So ED is a very common problem. So you know, it affects about, say, 20 to 30 million men. It's about 10% of men 40 to 70 years old have complete severe ED, okay? 25% of men 40 to 70 have moderate intermittent erectile difficulties. ED is also highly age-dependent. Moderate complete erectile dysfunction prevalence increases from 22% at age 40 to 49% by age 70. That's a lot of people. Yes. So there is a lot of different things that we could talk about about erectile dysfunction, but I do want to emphasize something. Men who have ED will typically say, oh, it's my testosterone. I think my testosterone low. Yeah. Okay. So testosterone has more to do with sex drive and not really with erections. So... That is a great pearl for you to know. That's good to know. Well, that is a great pearl to know because my testosterone is so low, I'm practically a cheerleader. <laughs> so it's it's terrible. Like, they keep telling me it's low. I'm like, it can't be that low. It's pretty low. It's pretty low. So thank you for informing me. Yeah. So also, um, so be aware that you know, erectile dysfunction is typically a vascular problem or a nervous system problem or it could be psychogenic. So there's a common, there's a different caveats on things. There are some things that, that can cause erectile dysfunction. So the etiology, it could be neurogenic, vascular, hormonal, psychogenic, and, or induced by medical or surgical intervention. So beta blockers and diuretics are something that can potenti- potentiate erectile dysfunction. The blood pressure meds that don't typically affect erectile function are ACEs and ARBs. Good. A lot of people these days, they got anxiety and depression. Lot, do you see a lot of patients that are on, say, SSRIs, mental health type drugs? Oh, only like 40, 50%, yeah. Okay. So if you have a male, okay, that's on some SSRIs, there a lot of those SSRIs can potentially have sexual side effects. A lot of them can have problems with delayed ejaculation or anorgasmia. Right. Which I do tell my patients that. I'm like, hey, this is like the big side effect. Either you're going to lose your ability to orgasm or you're going to lose your libido, potentially. And if that happens, let me know. So, so the good thing to know is there are some pro-sexual mental health drugs out there. Uh, Wellbutrin and Remeron have the least sexual side effects when it comes to the antidepressant-type medications. So when, when it comes to assessing erectile dysfunction, this is an important part, is that you want to ask a lot. It's, it's a big history-taking when it comes to evaluating someone who comes in for a complaint of ED. What's their erectile function like? Do they have problems with self-stimulation, partner stimulation? Do they have nocturnal erections? 
do they have ejaculation and orgasm? Is it premature or delayed? A lot of guys I have found, I, I've learned to screen some patients that are in the younger category. If they say that they're having erectile dysfunction and say they're under 40, I'll say, well, do you actually have problems with premature ejaculation? And that may kind of give you a clue because they think that that's erectile dysfunction when it's actually a problem with premature and not that they have problems actually with getting an erection. It's just that they don't keep it because of premature ejaculation. So that that's something that you'd want to uncover. You know, there's also, um, you ask about libido and sexual interest. Are they hypo or hyperactive partner function? Is their partner involved? Do they have a relationship? And what's their self-esteem? Do they have any depression or anxiety? Basically, you know, the assessment parts also, you know, do they have any history of, of spinal cord or head trauma? Medications we talked about, smoking, alcohol, recreational drug use. Marijuana is actually known to cause erectile dysfunction. So you got your frequent pot smokers out there. That kind of makes sense. Yep. So sedentary lifestyle, bing, bing, sedentary lifestyle can also, um, is, a you know, a something to be aware of. I've been smoking too. Yeah, smoking, because nicotine actually decreases nitric oxide synthesis, then that's part of what helps erections. So men who smoke, you know, we know vascular disease is a big part of ED. So So basically you're saying if you smoke, you're going to die with cancer and a lip cramp. <laughs> very possible, very possible. And, you know, these, we can't reverse that. You can't reverse vascular disease, especially of the main vein there, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm being truthful. I mean, I'm... I'm joking a little bit but i think to younger males that are smoking hit them up with those facts <laughs> that's true yeah. you, you say you say lung cancer and they're like yeah probably not or you could treat it but you say hey you're gonna get a limp dick and there's nothing i can do about it i guarantee you you're gonna grab some attention Just grab a couple of thunder pressers and handle those to them and tell them here you're gonna need these when you're 40 and they say, what you're taking it around it Exactly. So, but when it comes to you know erectile dysfunction, you know, think about some of those. Those are just the biggest things that we talked about already. Some of those risk factors. Um, when it comes to treating it, give you some little clues here. There's potentially a way to reverse some erectile dysfunction. Potentially, from what I've heard in a lecture, diet, exercise, and weight control. Weight control is also an issue with erectile dysfunction. So it's also been shown that men who have a 42-inch waist or more at the belly button, um, that can be a risk factor for ED. Uh, so lose weight. And look at our American diet and look at our... Lose weight, don't smoke. Right. Men who have uh, central obesity, you know, they're making more estrogen than they are testosterone typically. So that is something to think about, right? Oh, you are just the bad news bearer <laughs> on some of these facts. I'm just saying. Well, I, I'm, I'm telling you from experience and from knowledge. I'm only trying to help a brother out, okay? I'm trying to help you. Help hey, you you don't, help, you don't got to help me. I'm strong like a bull, okay? So you don't got to deal with me, okay? I'm just saying, I'm glad that we're getting the message out to somebody out there that's going to need help. And I mean, it, it might be me, but someday, but right. not today. I'll tell you Come that. On, Let Hillary help you, Tom. Let Hillary help you. So the other thing that, that, you know, we've talked about kind of like a basic assessment of these folks. If you want to be more in-depth and get labs on these folks, you know, just get like serum chemistry, CBC lipids, a total testosterone. I don't really think that free testosterones are all that great. And when you get testosterone, I prefer to have them fasting between the hours of 7 and 10 a.m. 
because testosterone is diurnal. Um, unless they're a shift worker, that's a different situation. But I read some nice guidelines on the Endocrine Society about actually getting a fasting testosterone rather than because food can potentially alter the testosterone. So, you know, make sure these people are actually not night shift workers. And, and I would definitely check their testosterone just because, you know, that just even though it's not a cure for it, it's something part of the assessment if you are wanting to go that route. So the other thing is when we talk about ED is, you know, you're going to treat it. If Even in primary care, we usually say, hey, yeah, start a month some Viagra. I typically don't recommend Viagra for those under the age of 40, okay, unless there's a known risk factor like they've had spinal cord injury or something like that, that you can try Viagra, which is, or, you know, some of the other PDE5 inhibitors. So they're known to work in about 60 to 65% of patients, and patients may come back and say, hey, they don't work anymore. Um, and it's not always because the drug isn't working, it's just that their disease is progressing. All right. So Viagra is, that's the one I am used to prescribing the most. So Viagra is best on an empty stomach. Okay. The full effect is typically one and a half hours. And there are some crazy side effects potentially with it, but it is tolerated pretty well. You know, some people, you've heard about the daily Cialis, the uh, five milligram, you know, on demand. It also is is FDA approved to treat BPH plus erectile dysfunction. So, but these drugs are expensive, but there is generic sildenafil, actually. It comes in 20 milligram tablets. I'm saying I think Viagra's going generic completely, like in December of this year, I believe. Okay, um, it might, but I mean, just for those people who, you know, can't afford that super expensive Viagra medication with the really youthful looking guy and the healthy looking lady and the healthy looking youthful looking older man on TV, you know, those are not your typical patients. But, you know, there is, you can give them generic sildenafil. Look it up on GoodRx. It's, I start people out at 50 milligrams to start. And if that doesn't work on the next occasion, I tell them to take 100 milligrams and make sure they don't take over 100 because I have some patients say, oh, I took two 100 milligram tablets because it didn't work. Because if one's going to be good, <laughs> just think what two's going to do. You're just going to be more at risk for side effects than you are. It's not going to make it any better. So, you know, and that's actually relatively cheap. I, I've done that for some patients. Um, you know, they just have to take like either three 20s or they take five 20s. I mean, that, that's a good thing to know for those who do prescribe, who feel comfortable prescribing that. And then, you know, if they're failing that therapy and it's not working for them and you've explored like, hey, ED is also known to be potentially cardiovascular risk factor. Men that have erectile dysfunction potentially could be going to have a heart attack down the road because it's vascular disease presenting in an early form. So think about those things too, as you're assessing somebody with erectile dysfunction, do they have a history of heart disease? Or do they not have a history of heart disease? It would behoove you to think about, hey, what erectile dysfunction isn't a disease. It's a it's a symptom of different diseases. So that's the best way to think about it. Well, and you know, you're talking about the taking a, a good throw history and in urology that probably works great, but in primary care, they act like this is a secret crack that you're not supposed to know about we often call this like the doorknob drug because it's just as you're getting ready to leave from the visit and you touch that doorknob and they're like oh uh, uh hey um, um you, you you got you got any of those, those those blue pills well you know what let me give you a good tip on that okay erectile dysfunction is not emergency you tell them to schedule another visit for that individually that's exactly what i would Boom. say you know what We've talked about this today. Why don't you schedule another point? We can discuss this at, an, at a separate appointment by itself. That's what I would recommend. It's not an emergency. That's a, that's a hard ass it's right true. there. true. Like Plus, you know, you'll get to see them again and you'll make some important 
it's an important thing to discuss with somebody because it obviously matters to them. So I totally get where you're coming from. And I've had to do that to patients in my practice. You know, we'll talk about other stuff and boom, by the way, I'll say, well, let's save that for another appointment. Make an appointment. We'll see you next, you know, next couple weeks or whatever. And we'll discuss it then. You've been living with it this long. You can live with it another two to four weeks. No big deal. Yeah. Yeah, and if you give Hillary any trouble, she's going to give you a four-finger prostate <laughs> mashing. So you don't want to do that. <laughs> the other thing I remember about about Viagra, uh, and I don't even know where I learned it, but is that it initially started out as an actually a hypertension medication. And, uh, yeah, pulmonary hypertension, actually. Uh-huh. And then when they were in the clinical trials, they figured out that it had a side effect that they could make a whole lot more money on. So that's why they uh, did that, so... But it can lower blood pressure. So that's the other thing that... Yes. So you always want to make sure... Um, I Thank you for reminding me of that. Um, if you have a patient who is on nitrates for chest pain, like, you know, they're taking any type of nitrates, I do not prescribe them Viagra. No PDE5 inhibitors if they're on nitrates for chest pain unless they have clearance from whoever they get it from to... And they say, oh, I haven't taken my nitro in a year. Well, if your cardiologist prescribes it, you better get me some documentation that you don't need it anymore because that is just an accident waiting to happen. So no PDE5 inhibitors for those patients. And there's other treatment modalities for ED, but you know, I don't expect you to do those in primary care. There's injections, there's suppositories, there's vacuum pumps. You know, let urology yeah. deal with that. You don't want to go down that road. <laughs> no. Well, Hillary, I uh, appreciate you being on the show. Well, I appreciate you letting me talk to my heart's content about urology. And um, I can say that I did recently publish, uh, co-author a chapter in a men's health book for uh, advanced practice providers. And you can find it on Amazon. It's called the Manual of Men's Health. My friend Sarah and I, we co-authored a chapter on penile and scrotal disorders. And it is the first book published specifically for APPs regarding men's health. It also has cardiac stuff in there too. So if anybody needs any references... Check it out. If you'll send that, that, send that awesome. to me offline, I will make sure that we get a link to that on our website and Facebook so that if people do want to find out more about men's health. And Thank you so much for having me. I don't know how many jokes I had in there. Hey, but, no, I think you know. it was great. Um, and since I said social media, Tom, <laughs> see, I'm going to take your segue from you. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, all at Just Some Podcast. Or you can find us on the web, www.justsomepodcast.com. Our email, admin at justsomepodcast.com. And with that note, Hillary, like I said, again, thank you. We appreciate it, and we appreciate your service in the military. It's my pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. I hope that what I, whatever else I spewed off was very helpful. I, I know I can talk fast, and I get really excited about urology, so... Well, I, you know, there's a joke there, but I'm leaving it alone about excitement and urology, but we're going <laughs> to, yeah. We already talked about erectile dysfunction, so we're good. Uh, so on that note, if anybody would like to hear more, please let us know. And I'm sure that uh, Hillary would be more than willing to come back on. But otherwise, Tom, you got anything else, bud? No. Um, certainly lots of good information. I think that she published is amazing. That's awesome. I hope uh, we can help you out with that. And certainly some stunning visuals left in my brain. Well, on that note, uh, I hope everybody has a great week. <laughs>